Let's just get right down to business. The Joe Robert Show. This, this is the Joe Robert Show. The Joe Robert Show. The Joe Robert Show. On today's show, we have Kent Ritter, and we're going to discuss multifamily syndication. Hello, Kent. Thanks for coming on today. Let's start by giving us some information about your background. Sure, Joe. Thanks for having me. Uh, so my background, I started out as uh, a management consultant and uh, started, gosh, that was uh, about 15 years ago now, and uh, started out traveling around the country helping uh, businesses solve their problems. So that's really what we did as management consultants and spent 12 years doing that. Five years of that 12 actually owned uh, my own business with a few partners, uh, our own management consulting business. And um, you know, went through that that typical kind of startup lifestyle of uh, literally like five guys around a kitchen table, you know, and grew that into a business as about 95 employees and just been under or just right at 30 million in, in annual revenue and decided to sell that business at the end of 2015. And that really kicked off my real estate career uh, because I had the capital from selling that business and didn't want to have all my eggs in one basket, didn't want to be all in the stock market, riding that roller coaster. So decided to look in, into real estate. Uh, well, I looked at a lot of other things and real estate was really where I landed um, for a number of reasons. It spoke to me and, and checked all the boxes. And so started uh, just educating myself, started investing passively in other people's syndications uh, just to get some exposure, you know, get the returns, but also start to learn what that's all about. Went through a few mentorship programs, you know, listened to every podcast, read every book that I could. And for about a, from the end of 15 to really into 19, uh, that's really what I did was just trying to, trying to learn as much as I could, knowing that, that this wanted, I wanted this to be my next career and uh, really just fell in love with it and uh, fell in love with finding the deals and go through the process. And, and as I gained more experience and, and more confidence, I decided to go out and start actually uh, running my own deals and finding my own properties and bringing in investors. And so in October, 2019, uh, led my first syndication with, with a, a group of partners. And then we've just been rinsing and repeating ever since. Uh, we did several deals in, in 2020 and another deal at the beginning of 2021. And now we've got two, two deals under contract right now. So we're working on uh, our seventh syndication at this point. So uh, when you first heard about multifamily, was that through uh, an online source? Was that people in your network or how were you first, like, how did you find it? Yeah, that, that's a good question. You know, I think it started with a friend of mine. A friend of mine was investing uh, through crowdfunding and really got me into that, got, you know, the 2015, that crowdfunding was still pretty new. And uh, so he got me into that, started looking at deals, started understanding kind of, you know, what multifamily is and, um, and all the benefits. And then I really started with a lot of podcasts. So I started listening to a bunch of podcasts related to multifamily, started again, understanding it better, um, skipped, you know, was able to kind of just skip that whole, you know, kind of single family rental step and, and trying to amass a portfolio of single family rentals and just went right to multifamily. I like the scalability of it. I liked that, uh, you know, you could really approach it like, like a business, you know, I liked that, uh, there was just better protection as far as, you know, you could have like in a lot of our deals, you, you could lose 25% of the residents on the property and still be able to pay the loan. And, and I like that aspect of it. And so, um, yeah, I think it started with a friend and crowdfunding and then, and then evolved from there in kind of more sophisticated ways as I built relationships with syndicators and people that were, were leading these types of deals and projects and found some mentors and then started doing it on my own. So in, in, in that time frame, I guess between what, 15 and 19, did you participate in deals as a limited partner? 
Yeah. So that, that was really what I was doing primarily in that time. Uh, and I was in 16. So I, I did my first investment in 15. That was on a crowdfunding site. And then in 16, I went out, found some sponsors, invested in 10 deals and really deployed a lot of my capital in, into multifamily and uh, then continued to invest, uh, you know, in, in each successive year. But um, yeah, that was really a way that I felt like one, I I started out just thinking that I would passively invest and thinking I would just take this money from from selling that business and I would just passively invest. Well, you know, I, I'm an entrepreneur at heart and I can't sit still for that long. And uh, I just really wanted to learn kind of like my wife always tells me like, like, like if I want to buy a TV, I'm going to go look at like 40 TVs and I'm going to do like all the research <laughs> and all this and like figure out like the exact best one. And like, that's kind of how I am with with everything. And so as I was investing in these deals, like, like I didn't want to just invest blindly and, and put my money out there. I wanted to know everything about them. And so I was asking a lot of questions. I was doing research, trying to learn more, like, how do you make good investments? How do you, how do you pick the right markets? What are the right markets? You know, how do you pick the right deals, all this stuff. And I went through a couple of mentorship programs to, to learn a lot of that and, and read a ton of books and just talked to a bunch of folks. And then as I just got into it more and more, I realized that, man, this is something I really think I can do on my own. I think I can take all that business experience I have and and really create a business that that will give me the lifestyle i want also provide a ton of value for the people around me allowing them to invest with me in deals that they typically wouldn't have access to um and it, it just was a lot of fun and i just really enjoyed it searching for the deals and doing the underwriting and kind of going through the process and so yeah it all just kind of went from something that was going to be very passive and just continue to kind of grow what i had to something that now has become a, a day-to-day business for me and we're, we're just growing the company and, and out there doing deals on our own since more of our uh, listener base would, would be probably considered an LP, I mean, I sure would like to hear some of the lessons you've learned. I mean, that's the best way uh, from like the crowd funding websites, right? What are some things that worked and maybe some things that didn't work? Yeah, I, I had a really mixed experience on crowdfunding. Um, so I did two deals on crowdfunding. Uh, one went fine. It, it was like a, a mes debt type deal. Uh, so there, there was some additional, you know, you're higher on the capital stack there, some additional security. Uh, the other deal that I invested in was a, uh, was was just an equity uh like a common equity piece you know just as an lp investor and uh lost all my money in that deal all like all not even a return uh, return part of capital or anything like all of it yeah the 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 sponsor committed fraud and uh and i mean just wasn't just me everybody lost their money in that deal and so that was uh that was pretty gut-wrenching uh but you know the way i look at things is there's a lesson in in everything that you do and it didn't deter me i mean it wasn't real estate's fault it wasn't multifamily's fault like the deal in itself was a good deal it was just a bad guy and so you know the, the thing the big thing i learned was was shame on me i didn't vet the sponsor I mean, I went on the site and was scrolling through and was like, oh, there's a deal that looks good. Like, I like that market. You know, those returns look good. But I didn't know at that point really what to do. I didn't know what due diligence meant. And I didn't know that you should do due diligence on the actual sponsor, right? Like, I mean, you just, you think, like, I was under the impression that the site was doing that type of diligence. Well, because that's what they advertise. But uh, essentially something got through and who knows, maybe even I wouldn't have found anything, but I didn't even take the step. And so my piece of advice would be, if you're going to invest with somebody and, and invest $50,000 or, you know, whatever it is, that's a pretty standard minimum, you know, at least make sure you're getting on the phone with that person and make sure you have a conversation with them make sure you're trying to look for what I, what I've kind of boiled down to four things are, are what I look for. And, um, the first one is integrity. I mean, it, it starts there. It's like, you know, if you're not investing with a good person, um, you're going to get taken like I did. I mean, there's people out there, unfortunately, that that will do that. And so, you know, it, it's hard to know, but you can at least get that gut check feeling, right? Is, is this a good person? Is this somebody that I would trust uh, giving my money to? Um, the next one is, you know, they've got to have, I think a sponsor needs to have a decent amount of financial means themselves. 
because you know if a deal goes bad you, you don't want the 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 sponsor to be belly up and and not be able to keep the deal going. I mean, I think it's the sponsor's responsibility to keep keep those deals afloat during during bad times. And so they've got to have a certain amount of means to be able to do that. You also don't want a sponsor that's, you know, just in it for the fees and is just trying to get get the next deal done to get those fees because they're those incentives aren't aligned, right? They're you want a sponsor that's trying to put you into the right deal, not just put you into the next deal because they want to get those fees off of it. So I think it's important that there's a, a certain financial means that exists with a sponsor. Uh, the, you know, other ones would be a track record. You know, I look for people that have a track record and I know everybody has to start somewhere. So, yeah. so it's not that you have to have had like, you know, I talked, I talked to someone the other day and, and they set up a call with me and, and then they essentially said, well, you know, I don't invest with anybody that, that hasn't had the same executive team in place for, for five years and isn't on at least their 10th deal. And I was like, okay, well, well that's not me. So, uh, <laughs> so, not so, so, so what, well, yeah, why, why are we on the phone? But, uh, but you know, but everybody has different criteria. I'm not quite that strict. Uh, I look at other things because I, because I understand just like me, everybody gets their, their, their start somewhere. Right. And, but I look for, if there's not real estate experience and there, there's at least some sort of business experience There's some sort, they've had some successes in their past where they've worked hard and been successful because of that. Right. And so I think there, there can be track record in many different ways, but there's gotta be some track record there. Um, and then lastly is just, uh, putting skin in the game. So, you know, I, I want sponsors that are investing their money right alongside myself. Uh, it's something I do in all my investments just because it's kind of a simple thing. But if somebody came to me and said, Hey man, you should really invest in this. And I can, and they're like, I'm not investing in it, but like, you really should like, that's not something I would do. <laughs> so I, I want to see somebody who's putting their money in right beside me. And so those are the four things that I really look for uh, when I'm investing passively. And I still do invest passively, not in multifamily anymore, but in other asset classes like industrial or medical office where you know I'm not the expert, but I want exposure to those areas. So those are the things that, that I really look for. Well, let's hit a little bit uh, on each one of those. So when it comes to uh, the sponsor, how do, how do, you, do you typically uh, require a few references and then go and call them? Or how do you vet that sponsor? Yeah, it depends how well I know them up front. You know, a, a lot of people that I invest with now, I've gotten to know over, uh, you know, over a period of time, but before I'm making that investment, or uh, somebody that that I know and trust has, you know, has been investing with them and, and has had success, and I've been able able to see that. So, yeah, I think it's important to to build a relationship. I don't usually ask for references because. And I have, and references are, are a good source, but I just feel like people are going to give me their, their mm -hmm. happiest people. Like they're never going to give me the people that were unhappy to, to be a reference, you know? So it's, you know, you can get us, I, I think references are good because people will ask me for references and I give them, but I also tell them, you know, I, I think that references are good for you to help understand my style, my communication style, you know, what you've experienced from when you're getting distributions, uh, you know, when you're getting communications, things like that. Uh, you know, have I delivered K1s on time? Like more of like the the like practical things, I guess, or the concrete things versus, you know, like, uh, did, did you like the guy or, or whatever? So I think that the references can be good to kind of understand style. Um, but, you know, I, I rely a lot on just getting to know somebody and having kind of that gut check. I mean, I believe a lot in, in intuition and, and in that gut feel. And, and I think that you can tell a lot from people, you know, and, you, and that you should trust your gut. Is there anything that you specifically implement to kind of nurture those leads as they first are introduced to yourself? Uh, with other with other sponsors, well, not no, with I, yourself. I'm saying, like, if you guys have, a, let's say, one of our listeners or a potential LP approaches you, you know, do you? Oh, yeah. I guess you have like a newsletter. Kind of, how do you build your yeah. trust with those over time until they are actually ready to invest? Yeah, yeah. The great question. So one is just my website. So a lot of people will start with the website, 
And so, you know, I built a website in a way so people can get a sense of who I am, you know, understand a little bit more about me and what I'm doing. Um, additionally, I have my podcast, which is Ritter on Real Estate, which is um, exactly really built for for a couple purposes. One is to allow people, again, to kind of get to know me and who I am and my personality. But two, it's to, to be a resource for folks that are uh, passive investors. I mean, my podcast, like yours, is really targeted at, at people that are investing passively. And so so I want to I want to be giving back first, right? But so that they get that feeling that I am trying to give back and help educate them as they come into the deals. So so those are some starting points. And then uh, we have a newsletter you can sign up for on the website. The newsletter goes out weekly. And so that that's, again, another way to to continue to get to know me and, and my company and who I am. And then just the ability to, to fill out an application form and set up a call and get on the phone. And then so I'll have folks usually from that first call, I, I suggest we have another call in two to three weeks, you know, to continue to get to know each other and continue to progress the conversation. And, and I usually don't really get into a lot of the actual like the first call, I just really want to understand who they are and their goals. You know, and then I allow people to ask questions. And then, and then as we have successive calls, kind of get into, you know, what type of investments have you made? You know, what are your, what are your targets? What type of investments you like? You know, more investment specific things. Um, but yeah, there, there's definitely a process. And, um, you know, some people come and they say, you know, I've listened to 20 episodes of your podcast and, and, and I like who you are and I'm ready to invest. And other, and other people say uh, exactly that, you know, well, you know, I'm, I'm not quite comfortable yet. I want to kind of, you know, see like, the, can you give me some example deals? Can I talk to some people, get some references, you know, maybe uh, just get on the newsletter. So people all start in different places. It depends on what their experience is, you know, with different investments, what their timelines are, what their goals are, but try to make a process that kind of fits people wherever they're at and, and can ultimately get people to that level of comfort. So that they feel comfortable making that investment decision because what i found is, is a lot of times it's not even because because real estate investing especially when when your minimum investment i mean our minimum investment is fifty thousand, and so when you're when you're investing a significant amount of money you know it, there's definitely about it's about getting comfortable with me but for a lot of people too it's just about getting comfortable with themselves and trusting themselves to make that type of investment especially if they've never done it before and so that's why through the newsletter and a lot of the education pieces i do it's really to try to help people get comfortable uh, feeling like they can make that decision because a lot of the the first questions I get are like these returns seem too good to be true like there there has to be something uh, something that we're missing and and it's really it, they're not too good to be true it's just an unfamiliarity with uh, you know with what type of returns you can get from real estate investing because a lot of people are used to just the stock market or bonds or or whatever you know so it's like getting people comfortable with themselves to be able to to believe that those returns are there and evaluate the deal and feel comfortable making making that significant investment. Yeah, people are used to handing their money over to uh, advisors on the second one percent fee and not quite sure actually what their annualized return is until they look at it down the road at some point, right? Right. So uh, you mentioned skin in the game from the sponsor. What is your yeah. take? What is your take on the acceptable percentage of the amount to be raised that you like to look for? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I don't really have a percentage. Um, I look at it more as you know, I, I want them to have at least the minimum investment in, right? And and that's what I always seek to invest in is the minimum investment. And based on my, my cash flow position, I may invest more depending on kind of what's what's going in and out at, at any given time. But um, but it, it's having something there and, and something that's not just not just all acquisition fee as well as well. I mean, part of it can be funded from the acquisition fee. Like I get that as, as a sponsor. It's part of part of why we do these deals. But um, but some of it has, has to be cash out of their pocket. So th those are my main criteria, because, again, everybody starts in different places. Everybody has different you know, financial positions and not everybody's super wealthy when they get started off. But I, I want to know that at least what they're putting in is a meaningful amount for them, I, I guess, not necessarily a specific percentage. A meaning amount that they pay attention to the deal and are managing it to execute the business plan. Exactly. Like if they're worth, you know, $20 million and they're putting 25K in, like that's not a meaningful <laughs> amount, right? But 
but if if it's their first couple deals and you know they're and they're trying to build up uh build up their own financial position you know 25k could be meaningful for them so it's more about yeah is that amount meaningful to the sponsor thanks and now when it comes to the fees you mentioned uh acquisition fee what's uh, a normal acquisition fee lps can expect a gp to take and typically what does that cover or pay for yeah that's a good question so an acquisition fee typically would be between anywhere from you know one and a half to three percent you know there probably two to three percent is the most common uh, but as deal sizes go up, typically acquisition fees come down. So on larger deals, you know, $50 million deals, you may see 1%, one and a half, but, uh, yeah, two to three is pretty typical. I've seen some higher, I've seen some lower, uh, what they typically cover is, uh, really it's, it's the fee to the sponsor for all the work that they've done to, to get to that point. I mean, it, it's a hard process, uh, and it's paying for, for that deal, but also for the you know, for the 50 deals that didn't happen and the time spent to find that one deal. So it, it, it's really the way that, uh, you know, to kind of reimburse the sponsors for their time and effort on the front end of, of finding the deal, putting the deal together, you know, securing the financing, paying, you know, paying all the legal fees and doing all that piece of it that's required and doing the due diligence and, and bringing all the pieces together that it takes to, to go and acquire a, a large apartment. Well, let's go into details there because this is definitely a very competitive market and sourcing deals is I'm sure taking quite a bit of time to find the right one. And so why don't you kind of give us some insights into the steps that you're taking to source and what uh, locations are you looking at? Sure. So uh, sourcing deals, really, we, we have two primary strategies. One is uh, going direct to seller uh, through, through mailer campaigns and, and direct outreach to owners. And the other is through broker relationships and uh, you know, creating good broker relationships is, is the most important piece of finding deals. Uh, if you, especially if you're looking for a larger multifamily, because in the larger multifamily space, I mean, almost everything is going to go through a broker, uh, when, when it's time to sell. So, you know, creating those relationships are, are really how you get in front of deals and how you compete in a, in a very competitive market. Um, and the idea is, is to create those relationships and stay top of mind so that you can, um, you could be on that short list and kind of see those deals as they come out before they go to full market. Cause many brokers before they fully market a deal will send, uh, just the raw details, like a, a rent roll and a T12, which is the, like the profit and loss for the deal, um, out to a small group and say, Hey, is anybody interested in this one for people that they know that they can close deals so that they don't have to spend the time and effort and cost of creating the marketing package and going through a big, a big marketing spend on that. So, so getting in that short list, I think is critical to, uh, be able to find deals, um, and take deals down where otherwise you're gonna end up in situations where you know you're bidding against 10 15 20 other people uh in a fully marketed deal and, and that's a uh, pretty tough to make deals pencil out in this environment um yeah, i was gonna say if everybody's getting a, a similar offering with the t12 uh an offer memo you know what makes one bid you know a lot higher than another to win it you know is there something that they're making mistakes on or is there something that they can do differently to execute the business plan uh man i think a lot of it comes down to uh, well, so a lot of it definitely comes down to your cost of capital, right? So if if you are backed by a large financial institution that maybe only needs to get a 4% return on their billion dollars, right? Because they have so much money, they just have to deploy it. Then you're going to be able to pay a lot more for a property and still meet those those investors return expectations than somebody that's ex expecting an 8% preferred return and a, you know, a 15% IRR, right? Um, so so, so that's one is what is your cost of capital and, and how much can how much can you then pay in regard to that right and some groups are going to be more competitive because their cost of capital is lower because they're backed by larger institutions rather rather than individual investors um from from an actual underwriting standpoint i mean people 
people do all kinds of stuff. Uh, I mean, everybody says their underwriting is conservative, but like everybody's definition of conservative is, is vastly different. (laughs) And so, um, some groups may be underwriting that rent's going to grow 8% a year for the next five years. And their projections are going to look much higher and therefore they can pay a higher price. Um, you know, and probably win that deal. Uh, but, but you have to, as an investor ask, what's the likelihood that, that that's actually going to play out. Right. I think investors that only look at an IRR number or even a cash on cash number and don't look at the assumptions behind it are, are really, uh, setting themselves up for failure because it's, you know, there's this idea of a risk adjusted return, right? And everything you should look at is is a risk adjusted return. It's, and another way that that can be said is like, what's the probability that that return is actually going to happen. Right? Like, like you could go and invest all your money in startups, you know, and, and, and those startups may, some of those startups may go 10 X, but the majority of those startups are going to go down to zero. Right. And so you may hit a few home runs, but you're going to lose a lot of money too. It's just, it's a, the risk reward is completely different, right? It's a high risk, high reward. Whereas a, a multifamily syndication really is, is fairly decent reward for really a low risk. I mean, in many ways we're buying businesses that have been there for 30 or 40 years cash flowing, and we're just trying to help them create some additional cash flow, right? We're not buying properties that are uh, distressed and that, that are empty and, 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 you know, and we have to, we have to fund them until we can get them leased up and cash flowing. I and mean, a lot of these properties we're buying are having cash flowing for a long time. So you're buying a cash flowing business and just helping it make a little more money. So I think from a risk standpoint, the risk is fairly low, but again, you, you just have to look at the assumptions and uh, you know, it, it goes back to why is one more competitive than the other? Well, cause somebody might be assuming they're only rent's going to grow 3% and somebody else is assuming rent's going to grow 8% and their models are going to look completely different. But it, you know, at the end of the day as an investor, it's like, which one is going to be right? Or which one is more likely to be right? Uh, what class apartments and what size are you currently t- targeting? So B and C class properties, which kind of sit right in the middle of, you know, if you think about real estate asset classes, there's four, there's A, B, C, and D. So B and C sit right in the middle. D would be kind of really bad neighborhood, uh, really distressed property, not not something that, that I want to get involved in. Uh, a would be like the nicest, newest stuff down, downtown, right? B and C, kind of sits in the middle where my properties are primarily suburban properties, uh, garden style apartments, and, uh, you know, built pretty much 1970 or newer. Uh, and they're going to be really targeted at workforce housing. So, so folks that are making typically anywhere from about 40,000, uh, to 65,000 a year, uh, from a median household income standpoint, uh, a lot of long-term renters, people that are rent by uh, necessity versus choice, right? A lot of you know, even lifetime renters, we really cater to that demographic. Um, it's a really solid renter pool. And then the, the whole uh, trick of it is just maintaining a level of affordability as you come in to make your improvements. That's something that we look at very closely as we look to acquire apartments is like, how affordable is it for the people in that area? Right. And we want to make sure that it's not only affordable now, but even after we come in and make our improvements and, th- and then raise the rent to, to fund those improvements, that it's still going to be affordable. And, that, and we're not going to be pricing people out of the market. Um, and I think if you can do that, then you can, again, have, have a pretty safe investment um, and maintain a good level of conservatism. With the current rise in rents through most areas, I mean, where do you think, uh, I mean, how much further can rents go from affordability standpoint? Do you think there's a lot of room to grow or do you think we're already have seen a lot of that rent growth the last few years? I mean, I think it all depends on the market. Yep. I, I, I think it's too, like, you can't be that general, really. I think that one thing that you should look at and one thing that we look at very closely is what we call the rent to income ratio. And so in any acquisition that we're making, we, we look at what what is the median household income of that area, like the one mile radius around that property. And then, and what is the rent, right? And so 
what it what the rent to income ratio says is how much of somebody's monthly income are they spending on rent and what hud the housing and urban development tells us is that anybody that's above 30 percent is considered rent burdened meaning it's unsustainable for them to pay that much of their income in rent so we look at that threshold and we we make sure that we're well under that 30 percent mark and so when we make acquisitions on the front end we like to be in the kind of the low 20s uh, up to the mid 20s to know that we can come in and raise rent and still after that be well under that that 30 percent threshold and may, know that there's affordability there's an affordability component for those people and the people that live around that property or work around that property can't afford to live at that property. So I think that's what you have to look really closely at, but I mean, it changes drastically by market. And in some markets, 30% is is like impossible. Like if you look at markets like some of the coastal markets like New York, San Francisco, I mean, people will pay 50, 60% of their income in rent. Yeah. So but for what we're looking at in the Midwest, uh, you know, being in the, those mid twenties is definitely achievable. And we feel good about that, meaning that people can by and large afford their rent. And, and that's why like even during COVID, I mean, we really, we saw, we saw hardly a blip from people being able to pay rent, uh, from, you know, bad debt. We did see delinquencies creep, creep up a little bit, meaning it, it, it took people a little longer in the month to pay their rent, but ultimately people were paying and, uh, and we still maintained about 95% collections. And so we felt really good about that. And I think it's because of the affordability of the properties and because of really that, that demographic that we're targeting. Your geographic location that you guys are targeting is the Midwest currently? Midwest, yeah, and primarily Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky. I mean, we, we operate in in states that are, uh, you know, landlord friendly, uh, have have low taxes, um, and they're, they're easy states to do business in. That's simple. <laughs> yeah. So let's go into some other you know reasons why you know people in limited partnership invest in these multifamily deals. Uh, you know, what are some of the top reasons that you know they see benefits for? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll just give you my, my own reasons of why yep. I started doing this, right? I mean, <laughs> yep. it's, uh, well, first and foremost, when I was looking at it, and a lot of people are in the same position, most people have, have their whole nest egg within the stock market, right? And so first thing is just, just diversification. You, you don't want all your eggs in one basket. And, and multifamily investments or real, any type of real estate, for the most part, is non-correlated with the stock market, right? Meaning if the stock market drops, your real estate's not automatically going to drop. Too, right? You want things that are non-correlated and things that it will do well when, when the other is not. So one is just diversification, right? So that, that was number one, non-correlated with the stock market. Two was the returns were, were just much higher. I mean, double, triple from, from what you'd experience in the stock market long-term. Because um, a lot of people quote like 100-year averages for the stock market. And it's like, oh yeah, it returns 7% a year. It's like, yeah, if you look back to 1900, sure, but you're not accounting for taxes. So take another one or 2% off that, you know, and really you're like five or 6%. And then if you look at time periods of like the year 2000 to 2010, your return in the stock market was zero if you invested in the S&P 500. So, you know, you gotta be careful with those things, but real estate returns were much better. There's also a cash flow component, which, um, you know, you don't often get in, in stocks either. You can, you can get dividend stocks, but but still the cash flow is kind of minimal. Um, so I love that there's a significant cash flow component of anywhere from being able to get, you know, seven, eight, 10% a year um, in cash distributions from the profits of the property. And the last one was, was the tax benefits. Uh, being able to uh, get your share of the depreciation and offset your gains through the, the off through that depreciation and ultimately avoid avoid paying taxes on a lot of your gains or or at least you know defer the taxes down the road to the end of the investment and keep that that money in your pocket because it is true it's not what you make it's what you keep right <laughs> so the real estate has a lot of tax benefits um and the more that you get into it and the more that you start investing in multiple deals the, the more that those start to compound now, do people have the ability to invest in these syndications with their retirement funds? They do. People do. Um, you have to consider a few things, though. Um, you know, 
one of the big benefits I just talked about is tax advantages, right? Well, if you're investing out of your retirement fund, it's already tax advantage. So you don't have that additional benefit of, of having the additional tax advantage, right? Um, the other thing you have to be aware of is something called a UBIT tax, uh, which is an unrelated business income tax. And, and it's different for everybody. So you need to talk to your, your, your CPA. But essentially, if you're investing in something that has a su substantial debt portion, which uh, most syndications do, there could be an additional tax that, that you have to pay. Now, I've seen that to play out as maybe degrading the, the returns of, and maybe a, a percent or a percent and a half. I mean, it, it may not be material on something that's returning 15, 16, 17 percent, but it is something that people should be aware of. I don't want anybody to be caught off guard about that. So there are some additional considerations if you're investing from your uh, from your IRA. You also have to set up something like a self-directed IRA uh, or a solo 401k or something that that so you're, you're taking it out of the control of uh, you know, uh, whoever your, your current custodian is, you know, with your work or, or somebody uh, that's limiting what you can invest in, right, only to their things. Um, and if you go to the self-directed route, it really opens up to be able to invest in uh, just about anything with your retirement account. So um, it's something that's worthwhile looking into for folks, even if they don't invest in real estate, just having more control on what you can invest in. I agree there. And one of the things that uh, I've noticed is most uh, sponsors never kind of have a conversation around that UBIT part through their retirement accounts when they're marketing. No, that's why you know I, I try to bring it up. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and again, like, you know, I just, I never want to surprise people. Yep. Uh, I, I never want people to be surprised. And so I think it's better to be upfront about it and just let people consider it for themselves rather than them be surprised on the back end and say, like, well, what the hell? You didn't tell me this tax was going to come. It's not exactly my, my job. I'm not the tax accountant, but I do want people to understand that there's uh, just other considerations they need to make. Now, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, potential or existing investors out there in the market right now, or even over the last year or two, have felt maybe uneasy about where the market is, right? It's like, uh, we're either too hot or we're like in a major recession last year, yeah. right? Or, you know, it's not like this consistent feel where people are like, okay, we're gonna have this normal growth. Uh, how are you, you know, kind of what's your feedback on that? And how are you underwriting? What's going to maybe happen next few years when you're, you know, underwriting these deals? Yeah, this, this is a great question. Great question. And, uh, you know, I, I can't predict the future, but, but I have some, some pretty strong feelings about it, I guess. I, um, you know, I've, I've been looking for a lot of negative indicators to, to say, like, things are going to cool down and, and stuff has to stop. But I frankly haven't been able to find many. Um, you know, I, I'm hearing a ton of positive things, reading a ton of positive things. And, and to me, that makes me feel a little bit uneasy because I'm like, well, I, I want to know like the other side, but, but honestly, I've really come to this belief that we are in a very unique time right now where, you know, if you, so let me just for context, when I first started, it was actually 2014 when I first started like digging into real estate, because I remember in 2014, people being like, we're at the top, this is it, can't go up anymore, like sell, sell, sell. And here we are seven years later. And, and if you bought something in 2014, I mean, you could have thrown a dart at a wall and picked a property <laughs> and, and you made money on it. So, um, you know, so people have been saying that for seven years that, that we're at the top. Uh, I, I don't think we're at the top because of a few things. One is the fact that, you know, with all of the, the government subsidies that, that have happened through COVID, uh, through unemployment, through just putting cash in people's pockets, uh, through all the all the all the other programs. I mean, there's nine trillion plus dollars that are floating around that weren't 12 months ago, you know, and it's, uh, and it's, it's pretty wild. Uh, just that extra money that's just floating around there, that money has to be put somewhere, 
right? And, and so a lot of people, a lot of the large organizations, the investment companies are just sitting there with a ton of what they call dry powder, which is money on the sidelines and they want to invest and, and their return expectations are, are lowering like we talked about at the beginning because they just need to deploy the capital. So there's more money chasing properties than ever before. I think that interest rates are, are low and, and we expect them to stay low uh, for the foreseeable future. I mean, the Fed has said they're gonna start raising interest rates in 2023, uh, but they've also said for the first time in like 30 years that they're going to seek an average in, uh, inflation rate of 2%, not a ceiling of 2%. So you understand that the difference is that before it was a ceiling of 2%. And, and every time we started to sniff 2%, they would raise interest rates and make changes and we would and, and inflation would dive. So we haven't hit 2% inflation in like 30 years. And so now they're saying they're going to let it run at an average of 2%, which means, well, we have to go above 2%, right? So they're actually going to let inflation run a little bit more, which means they're not going to preemptively raise interest rates, which is going to keep rates low. So even though they've said in 2023, they're going to kind of start to, to ratchet things up. I mean, that depends how things look in 2023. And I think still relative to history, interest rates are at super low prices. Money money is very cheap and therefore people can pay more. And we're seeing that in the in the single family space too, right? People are paying more for houses because they're able to get super cheap loans. I mean, we refinanced our house like 2.75%. That's crazy. Um, and so money that's another reason is the money is just so cheap right now. Again, there's more money floating around. There's more competition for deals, meaning prices are going to go up. So, so what I believe is going to happen in the next two to three years is we're going to see a ton of asset inflation. Uh, I think all the properties that we own are going to continue to go up. I mean, in, in markets that I'm in, I've, I've seen 30% inflation in the past like six to nine months. Like it's been crazy how much uh, things are priced at now in some of these markets. And, and does it make sense for me on some of those now? No, but I'm also limited by my, my, his, my historical, uh, mind of being like, man, I just paid for this six months ago. Yeah, like I can't pay, now I can't pay 30% more six months later. And like, maybe that's true, maybe that's not, but um, but it's fact of the matter is where things are. And I think we're gonna continue to see that that inflation. And so I think, and then, then I think you just have a general, like if you take it back to the biggest picture, you have like supply and demand. And the fact of the matter is that there's just not enough housing for people. There's not enough single family houses. I mean, I read a report that we were 4 million single family houses short. I read another report on multifamily saying we're anywhere from like four to 5 million multifamily units short. So, I mean, there's a significant housing shortage uh, and construction has slowed, you know, it's slowed through COVID where, where things are starting to pick up now, but it's being slowed by labor shortages and increased material costs, right? So <clears throat> as housing prices continue to increase, people are gonna be pushed to rent for longer. So I think that from a rental, I'm very bullish on the rental space overall. I think that over the next couple of years, we're gonna have kind of this perfect storm of cheap money, uh, demand outpacing supply. And and the only thing I think that, there's two things I think that kind of get us off this uh, this trajectory we're on, I, th I think one would be interest rates rise drastically, but I don't I don't see that happening into the future. I mean, they're going to go up, but I don't think they're going to go up in that meaningful of a way. And then two would be just just oversupply, right? But we're so far behind that we would have to build, you know, triple the the pace we've been building for the past ten years to to hope to catch up in the next I don't know five, six, seven, even ten years. So I don't really see that happening either. So I think that there's going to be this period of growth. Um, that becomes a little murkier as we get into the next presidential election. You know, I definitely don't have a crystal ball. So all of this is just my opinion, but, but I think that we're in a unique time uh, for asset appreciation and to create a ton of value by investing in, in real estate. Well, I think that you have to make, you have to form some type of opinion, right? Because you got to kind of create your own pro forma and, and make a business plan and, and move forward with that. So I yeah. appreciate your feedback there. Um, I guess, you know, maybe what we've seen the last five, 10 years or last five more than anything is seem like a lot of the outsized returns have been made more because also of, uh, because of a compression of cap rates. And now we're kind of 
getting near, let's call it a floorish, a floor somewhat in cap rates. Uh, you know, do you think this is more like a rent growth play where that we're seeing here in the next few years? I, I think that honestly, cap rates are continuing to compress. I mean, uh, Indianapolis, where I'm at, uh, is now a four cap market, which is <laughs> something that, that we never thought. Um, you know, you have towns, cities like Austin, where you have stuff selling in the two, two caps, like two eight caps. Uh, same thing on, on the coast. So, so I don't know that we have seen a floor. There's got to be a floor, but I don't know that we've seen it yet. I think that I think that longer term as I mean, the other thing are, are just we talked about de- supply and demand, but like the demographic trends are what is pushing demand, right? You're having people renting for longer than ever before. You're having baby boomers who are downsizing into rentals. They don't want to have the maintenance of a house. You're seeing more people want to rent. I think as I think if you look forward, you can look at countries like Germany. So Germany, you know, there's I think it's something like 70% of the population rents. Uh, where where U.S. is like in the 60s ish, and and they've had three caps for years because their their interest rates have been at zero for years, and so I, I think if you look at a country like that, I think that's where you could see the U.S. start to move in, in all reality, and um, and so I, I think cap rates likely do compress some more. I mean, I mean, they have to hit a floor eventually, but I do think we see some more compression. Um, I think if, if nothing else over the next couple of years, we, we probably see stability in cap rates where I think a lot of people like, like I am are still underwriting for cap rates to expand. And so, you know, the hope is that if they do expand, we underwrite that way so that if they expand and the cap rates go up, well, we're going to be on target for what our returns are. But if they don't, I mean, that that's gravy on top of the deal and we can under promise and over deliver. Right. So I think where you may, you asked the question earlier about why do some, why can some people pay a higher price? Well, a lot of it comes down to those cap rate expectations and are people underwriting cap rates expanding, staying flat or even uh, compressing in, in their model. And, and I, I wouldn't, you know, I would be hesitant to invest in a model where I, where I saw cap rates actually decreasing over time, just because if they don't, then you're not going to hit, you know, what, what you're being told you should be able to hit. And so there's not much margin for error there. Uh, I'd rather see a little bit of a lower return, but a, a higher likelihood of, of achieving it. Right. But, um, but yeah, I, but to your question, so one, I do think cap rates probably stay flat or continue to compress over the next at least two years. And then from a rent growth standpoint, yeah, I think we're in a couple of years where rent growth is going to continue to grow pretty rapidly. Um, just because uh, I think as housing prices increase and everything that we talked about, just lack of supply, there's just not a lot of other options uh, or places for, for folks to go. Well, I appreciate that. Is there anything else uh, you kind of want to add to our conversation today? No, I think we got into a ton of, a ton of detail, <laughs> uh, probably a little more detail than, than I usually am, but I appreciated the, the questions. I mean, it's, it's a lot of things I spend a, a ton of time thinking about. So yeah, what's going to happen in the future and, you know, and, and how's that going to affect things and, and how are we underwriting and how are we putting deals together? You know, um, I think one thing you mentioned, like, how has it changed our approach? I mean, we're, we're still underwriting cap rates to expand, you know, not as much in all markets, especially if we're buying, especially if we're buying above where market cap rates are by maybe going to a direct to seller, for example, you know, I'm not going to say they're going to continue to expand way above the market, but, um, you know, we've, but we're still ultimately kind of trying to add in some some conservatism into those cap rates. Um, from a debt perspective, you know, we've, we've moved to, um, we were doing a lot of 10 year, uh, fixed debt, but, but because of the cycle, we've, uh, actually decreased a lot of our hold times down to like three years versus a traditional five years. And with that shorter hold time, it, it's caused us to look at debt differently because you, you need the right debt paired with, with your hold time, uh, when you, cause you have to consider things like prepayment penalties. So, so we've looked at, you know, if, if it's a three year hold then maybe more like a five to seven year fixed debt than a 10 year fixed debt, um, just to balance the stability with the, uh, with the prepayment penalties. 
But oftentimes on our deals, we will uh, pay a little bit more upfront in the interest rate to have a more flexible prepayment. So instead of doing like a yield maintenance, uh, which can really hit you with, with extreme penalties if you sell early, more of like a step down prepayment where we're, we're locking into, okay, in years one to three, it's a 3% prepayment penalty. Years, you know, you know, four and five, it's a 2%. Years like six and seven, it's a 1%, for example. So we know what those prepayment penalties are and we can forecast those. And, and, we're, and we're just creating that flexibility to allow us to sell at the right time and, and not, not be able to sell into the right market just because we are, uh, we're facing high prepayment penalties. Because a lot of people are stuck there right now in this market where it's a seller's market. It would be a great time to sell your property, but the prepayment penalties are too uh, punitive right now to be able to sell the property. And so folks are being held to, or caused to hold on. Well, I appreciate that. And so I guess to wrap up, I would always have a, a final question. And that is, what is the biggest thing that you have implemented in your life that has helped increase your net worth? Man, that's a really good question. <laughs> the biggest thing I've implemented in my life. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's building a team around me. Um, you know, I started out trying to do a lot on my own and, uh, whether it was my, my podcast, which I edited myself for like the first six months and man, that takes 10 times <laughs> as long as you think it's going to take, like, that's not an easy thing to do. Um, all those things take away from, uh, your kind of highest and best use. Right. So, so I think it would be getting really clear on what my highest and best use is, which are really two things. One is creating relationships with investors. Uh, and helping investors through the investment process. And two is creating relationships with, with brokers. Uh, those are the two things that I try to spend the majority of my time on. And everything else I, I, I've tried to very intentionally outsource uh, by creating a team around me uh, to do that so that I can focus on, on what's gonna create the most value for me and, and my company and my family. And so I think that, that has had a, a pretty big impact in my life. Really, I mean, for a while, but especially over the last years, I've been really intentional about doing it. And, and my, my word for the year this year is, was intentional. So uh, in everything that, that I'm doing, I'm trying to be just that very intentional in doing it and spending my time in a very intentional way. And, and I've definitely seen benefits uh, to my net worth from spending time on the right things and being able to let go of the other things. It's definitely something I've heard before and in, in getting the right teammates. And maybe for those that are listening that are thinking the same thing, but maybe they're struggling to find those right teammates or those right outsourcing companies that actually have the best expertise to bring on their team. Maybe what are some things that you've used to filter to get those right people or implement it? Yeah, that's a good question. I've um, so depending on kind of the, the tasks to be done or, or, the, or the level, uh, you know, I'll, I will determine if I go to like an, an agent. So, so everybody that I have on my team is a contractor at this point. And so, and a lot of them have been found virtually. Uh, some are local, but a lot of them have been found virtually. So virtual assistance of some sort. Uh, if it's just a specific task that I need done, I'll go to like an Upwork or a Fiverr and find someone. Like if I need a, a PDF copied into Excel or something, mm -hmm. right? Like, like you can go to Fiverr or Upwork and find somebody to do that for three to $5 an hour um, and they'll do a good job. If it's something that's more long-term, then, then I like to work with agencies because I just have that Kind of continuity of if I if I need to move people in and out if if they quit you know and um, and they're, they're, I think I feel like there's somebody else to hold it accountable as well so so yeah I've used several agencies uh, but like my the way my team looks now is I, I have like an operations coordinator who's kind of my executive assistant plus like she started out as really my assistant and has grown to do a lot more for our business the easiest way to describe her is she kind of owns all the work plans and makes sure that that we are staying on time and and staying on task and, and everything's getting done that needs to get done she kind of it works as a central hub. I'll even have her join calls uh, with me and just take notes so that we have notes after the calls and she sends those notes out and it's a great way to hold people accountable, right? Because people say they're gonna do things and if it doesn't actually get written down and followed up on, then oftentimes that stuff just goes by the wayside. So that's been a really good tactic. Um, I have an underwriter 
who I use, who again is a contractor and he does all my first pass underwriting to get the deals to the point where I can take a look at them and make a decision. And then I've got, um, you know, several other folks like on the marketing side, like I have somebody who edits my podcast, uh, somebody who, who helps market my podcast and advertises and, and helps book and, uh, someone who, who manages my newsletter. Um, yeah, just, just a number of, of folks who, who now help me get all these things done. So I, so I can do more in a day than, than just one person. I feel like that is the way of today is uh, at least at launch and starting. And as you scale is to bring as many professionals in that bring the expertise in and get out there and start doing deals until maybe you hit a scale that you keep building your internal team more. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I love working with contractors, you know, it's just a really easy way to get people onboarded and up and running. You don't have to worry about payroll and, and all those things that come with that. Um, and, and yeah, it's a really easy way to scale quickly. I mean, I, uh, in, in our consulting business, like I said, we had 95 employees and, and that was a lot of employee management, a lot of HR. I mean, it just managing people is not my favorite thing to do. Um, you know, it, it, I'd rather have a small team of really highly skilled people than, than a big team of, of kind of lower, lower quality. And so I try to keep it small, lean and mean, right? And, uh, and yeah, using contractors has been a really good way to do that and scale up and down as needed and try new things too, without really having to spend, I mean, hiring and firing are, are two of the biz, biz, biggest expenses you will have in a business. And so if you can do it through contractors, it really uh, helps limit those costs, increase your flexibility. I appreciate that. So for all of our listeners that would like to get a hold of you, where's, where's the best way to do that? Yeah, the best way to do that is at my website, kentritter.com. And uh, the second best way to do that is to listen to my podcast, uh, which at the end, I'll tell you to go to my website. And so if you go to the website, there's just really, uh, you know, you can access everything from there. There's a blog. Uh, we do a blog. Uh, it's, it's weekly or, or even a couple times a week. Uh, you can see the podcast there. We're starting to do more video content that we have up there. And then you can just, you can read my story. And there's also an area for passive investors uh, with terms and, and frequently asked questions and things just to familiarize yourself with, uh, with these types of investments. Because like I said, they can be a little daunting your first time going in. So try to make it easy on folks. I appreciate uh, coming out today and sharing all that information. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate having me on the show. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Have a good one.